shortly after waking until up to about two hours before bedtime. And in recent years, more and more people have started to look at this concept that you mentioned, time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating. And what that entails is restricting intake of all calorie-containing items to a period of 12 hours or less each day. What's up, my friend? I am health expert Ted Rice, and I'm coming to you from Phuket, Thailand. Really excited to share today's episode with you. It's going to be all about circadian rhythms, about sleep. So have you been having some trouble sleeping? Do you have trouble maybe waking up in the middle of the night or perhaps even getting to bed? Or are you one of those people that wakes up too early in the morning? And you know it's not right to be up at 4.30 a.m. when you know, you're know you not supposed to be up until 6.30 or whatever it is. So today's episode is gonna be one of the best episodes you've ever heard on circadian rhythms, on realigning them, on getting them back on track so you have the best sleep ever. And my guest today, his name is Greg Potter. He's got a PhD in this stuff. And he's going to break things down like very few people I've ever heard. And you're going to hear resources in this episode today that I've never heard anywhere else. And it was such a pleasure to have him here. So can't wait to get to that. And I just want to say, if this is your first time listening, then Legendary Life is a podcast that's all about clearing up health and fitness confusion by breaking down science-based information on how to lose fat, prevent disease, and live a longer, healthier life. So if that's what you're interested in, you're in the right place. And if you want to make sure that every time one of my episodes goes live and you know about it, go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash review. I'll show you how to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And also if you're a listener and you've been uh, enjoying the show for a while and you feel like you formed an opinion and want to share it, it's the biggest compliment you can give me. I show you how to leave a review. Just go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash review. And it's a resource that we put together for you to help you help us. So the last thing I'll say before I hop into today's episode is that I'm putting together a supplement series and it's going to be launching next Monday. So the very next time that we release an episode, it's going to be on supplements. And I'm going to dive into what works, what doesn't, what you should spend your money on, which ones to completely stay away from and more. And it's going to be on a very, on different topics. I'm really proud of this and there's nothing to do except to show up to the next episode. So without further ado, let's hop into this interview with Greg Potter on circadian rhythms and sleep. Greg Potter, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on today. Hi, Ted. It's great to be here. I know that we spent a long time trying to organize this, which is entirely my fault. So thank you for your patience. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, we both have been having busy schedules and we finally made it happen. So really excited to dive into this information with you today because you your PhD work is on sleep, diet, metabolic health. You're big into time-restricted feeding, circadian rhythms, all these things that are very popular right now. So, and people are interested. Not only are people interested in this stuff, but 
people don't know who to believe about this information and you know what's being oversold, what is being embellished, and uh, you know what's truly important and, and what can actually help. So I'm, I'm really excited to dive into all that today. And before we jump in, can you just give the Reader's Digest version of how you got into doing a PhD in you know, sleep and circadian rhythms and metabolic health? Sure. So I've had a long-standing interest in health and specifically in how lifestyle affects health. And that started when I was 11 or 12, when I hurt my back playing rugby. And for the rest of my time at school, I spent most of my free time finding out more about exercise and nutrition. And I eventually went on to study sport and exercise science for my undergraduate degree and then exercise physiology for my master's degree. And it was around the time of my master's degree that I was considering different avenues that I could pursue going forward. One of those was postgraduate medicine, but that never quite sat right with me because I didn't want to have 12 minutes with my patients and then give them a prescription for. Uh, drug. And that's not to discredit what doctors do, of course, but I think you understand my point. So with that said, I realized that sleep and circadian rhythms are hugely important for health. But I also recognized that they weren't something that I knew that much about. And with that in mind, I was looking at PhD opportunities in those particular subject domains. And I saw an opportunity at the University of Leeds and applied for it and the rest as they say is history so i finished my phd june last year and i thoroughly enjoyed it and now recognize the importance of sleep and circadian rhythms and think that they're probably as important for most people to attend to as pretty much anything else when it comes to their health Mm. yeah definitely it's really hard to be on top of your game whether you're trying to lose some weight, change your body, whether you're trying to perform better at work, whether you're trying to just be the best parent you can be or run a business, it's really hard to do that with poor sleep. But let's talk about circadian rhythms because circadian rhythms, they go beyond just sleep. Can you just, in the lay version, explain what a circadian rhythm is? And then we're going to get into the different aspects, why, how, how diet, how nutrition has its own, how our feeding times has its own circadian rhythms and all that good information. Sure. So to preempt that, it's worth mentioning that all organisms on the planet or nearly all organisms on the planet evolved in the presence of these predictable changes in the environment, one of which is the light-dark cycle. And the light-dark cycle alternates, of course, about every 24 hours. And in response to this, organisms evolve their own timekeeping mechanisms. And these are produced by biological clocks. And these produce these rhythmic changes in various different biological outputs. And these persist in the absence of rhythmic external cues. So, for example, if you take somebody and you have them go fasting then you can still see these about 24-hour fluctuations in their biology. And circadian rhythms are called circadian rhythms because they're not precisely 24 hours. Circa means means about and dian means day, so about a day. But for most people, if you take them and have them go down into a cave where they're not exposed to any of these rhythmic changes in the environment, so the temperature remains the same, 
they're in constant darkness and they don't have food availability, then their circadian rhythms are slightly longer than 24 hours on average, perhaps 24 hours and 12 minutes or 15 minutes. And for that reason, it's important that we reset our circadian rhythms each day. And when we disrupt our circadian rhythms by way of unnatural light-dark cycles and eating at inappropriate times, for example, then we now know that many different negative consequences ensue. Yeah, well well stated. And I think this is so important because so many of us grew up with electric light, for example, like you said, and mm. we just never took it. I mean, I mean, we just sort of took it for granted and never thought twice about coming home after a day of work or after a long day at school and it starts to get dark outside. And then you're like, oh, I don't, I don't want it to be dark. I want to do some stuff around the house and enjoy myself. So I flip on the lights and create this longer daytime. And mm. then so many of us wonder why, you know, I exercise, I eat well, but I just don't feel like I sleep well for that, uh, for, for some reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, it's these things that these modern amenities, these modern, um, you know, things that we do, like using artificial light and uh, creating so much ambient noise and all the other things that, that create such disturbances for us. I want to get into sleep, but we've covered sleep quite a lot. And I'm very curious to hear your perspective, but even more curious about the time-restricted feeding. So you said when we eat at the wrong times, can you break down what you mean by that and how we know what the right time is and um, what the effects are if we don't eat at the right time for ourselves? Of course. And I suppose that broadly speaking, eating at the right time means eating during the biological daytime. And that's not necessarily when the sun is up because our biological rhythms, our circadian rhythms, aren't necessarily synchronized with the light-dark cycle outside. If you go camping for a few days, for example, then they will tend to more tightly synchronize with the light-dark cycle. But now, especially for people who live in cities, for instance, it's common for their biology to shift later and later, such that they're going to bed well after dusk and they're waking up early to an alarm, for example, and so that synchronization is lost. So with that said, the question is, what's the distinction between the biological daytime and the biological nighttime? Now, it's worth just explaining how the circadian system is regulated to <coughs> preempt this particular discussion. And our circadian rhythms are primarily set by our exposure to cycles of light and dark. And we have specialized cells in our eyes that keep track of information about our light exposure. And then they send this information back to a so-called master clock in our brain, which then relays this information throughout the rest of the body about the time of day. And when this daytime light exposure signal or light exposure signal was no longer coming into the eyes, the master clock in the brain sends that signal back to a structure called the pineal gland, which synthesizes a hormone called melatonin. So melatonin rises during darkness, and when melatonin is high, it's the biological nighttime. So that's the distinction between the biological daytime and the biological nighttime. If, it's, if melatonin is low, then it's the biological daytime. If it's high, it's the biological nighttime. Now, with that said, 
people then need to consider that when they eat within the biological daytime is important too. And there's a growing body of evidence showing that if we consume the majority of calories early in our biological daytimes, then that seems to be good for all sorts of things from metabolic health to the quality of our sleep too. And just to finish a thought on the biological nighttime, obviously we can't go and measure our melatonin rhythms from one day to the next. But broadly speaking, when people are allowed to sleep as much as they need, the biological daytime typically begins about two hours before sleep onset and it ends around the time of waking each morning. So that is probably an appropriate period for most people to consume their calories each day from shortly after waking until up to about two hours before bedtime. And in recent years, more and more people have started to look at this concept that you mentioned, time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating. And what that entails is restricting intake of all calorie-containing items to a period of 12 hours or less each day, typically 6 to 12 hours each day. So, for example, if somebody woke up at 6 a.m., then time-restricted eating, they might begin consuming calories at 8 a.m., and they might finish between maybe 2 p.m. and 8 p.m., something like that. Right. And can you talk about why it would be or what the benefits are to not eating at night? Because I, you probably haven't heard of this, or maybe you have, but Kim Kardashian, our celebrity who's famous for being famous, um, you know, said a while back that her trainer said not to eat after 6 p.m. Uh, I think it was carbs specifically, but then now it's turning out. And, and of course, I, I doubt he was reading literature, research literature on circadian rhythms. But even though he sort of instinctively knew like, hey, maybe it's not such a great idea to eat at night. And um, this has been actually a lot of cultures do this if uh, I mean I was reading the the blue zones and a lot of cultures have been doing this for a long time and can you just talk about like what are the specific benefits because I don't want people to get confused like oh this is the secret to fat loss or whatever what benefits are we um, talking about here sure so what I'll say to begin is that People have done these carefully controlled experiments using other animals to show the negative consequences of consuming calories when the animals should be sleeping. And those have been the best controlled experiments. And what you find, for example, is if you look at rodents and you give them food access only when the lights are on, which is when they should be sleeping, then they consume roughly the same number of calories as if they only have food access when the lights are off, which is when they should be active. But despite the fact they consume the same number of calories, when they're consuming calories when they would naturally be sleeping, they will gain more body fat and also experience a host of other metabolic abnormalities. So, for example, poorer regulation of blood sugar. Now, with that said, the best evidence that we have regarding ourselves has come out in recent years, and it's looked at time-restricted eating specifically. And there are a few groups around the world that have done some particularly good studies on this question. And actually, Courtney Peterson, who's at Pennington Biomedical Research Center, has done 
two or three excellent studies in the last couple of years. And the first of these was in overweight and obese men who have prediabetes, which means that they're at greater risk of diabetes, of course, themselves, but they haven't crossed the clinical threshold for being diagnosable with diabetes. And what she did was she compared consuming three meals each day over a 12-hour period for five weeks to having the same three meals, so same number of calories, same macronutrients, so same carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, but within a six-hour period that finished by 3 p.m., so they're consuming those very early in their day. And everybody in the study went through both conditions. And what she found is that when people went through that early time-restricted eating condition, they had better insulin sensitivity, which in the long term should mean that they're at lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes. They had lower measures of oxidative stress, which is, of course, integral to processes such as accelerated aging. And they had reduced appetite, as well as a very big drop in morning blood pressure. And the size of this drop was comparable to drugs that are commonly used to reduce blood pressure. And then just this year, Courtney subsequently published two other studies in overweight adults. And the two studies are actually on the same group of people. But what she's found, in short, is that when people go through this early time-restricted eating condition... They have lower blood sugar levels over 24 hours on average. They tend to have better blood lipids too. And also they have changes in the expression of their genes which are associated with aging such that you would expect that these people who have this early time-restricted eating condition would be aging at a slower rate. And they've also done some other work supporting their previous findings that this early time-restricted eating tends to improve appetite. So that's just a group of three studies that have demonstrated these positive effects. But there are other studies, of course, that have shown beneficial effects. And some of those include things such as improved sleep quality. Fascinating, Greg. And in those studies that you were talking about on, on the humans, on the overweight people, what was the window again? So that was a six-hour window. and Six-hour window. Yeah, finishing by 2 or 3 p.m., yeah. As you probably know from being in this this uh, world, uh, a lot of people who do intermittent fasting, right, or you know, another, I guess, if we want to call it that, another name for time-restricted feeding, although less based on the scientific evidence, but a lot of people who do intermittent fasting, they skip breakfast and end up eating later. Can you talk about the differences between or, or what the literature shows, what your opinions are on skipping a meal earlier in the day versus doing it later on where you're capping your, your meal time too much earlier? Yeah, it's a good question. And it raises another point, of course, which is the practicality of skipping dinner. Because I think for many people, they would see that as not being feasible. Maybe they have families and the prospect of finishing all calorie consumption at 3 p.m. is something that they just wouldn't consider. So that's an important consideration. But with that said, what it seems is that if you have the same caloric period each day or eating window each day, so for example, six hours, then it's probably better to have that period or window earlier in the day. And we can say that based on some nice studies of breakfast skipping that have been done. So 
First, there's lots of cross-sectional evidence, which is just when you ask people to record their diets and then you look at their health outcomes and you try to identify associations between the two, the breakfast skipping associates with many negative outcomes. So all sorts of different things from increased risk of diabetes to obesity. But to actually carefully ask this question, we need controlled studies in which you compare two different groups, one who skips breakfast and one who doesn't. And some research at the University of Bath over here in the UK have, have published two very nice papers on this in the last few years. And one of these looked at lean young adults, and there were two conditions. So in one condition, they consume no calories whatsoever before midday. And in the other condition, they consumed at least 700 calories by 11 o'clock, and both conditions lasted six weeks. And what they found is that those who skip breakfast did consume fewer calories, but they also burned fewer calories such that it had no real effect on energy balance, which is the main determinant of how fat somebody is. And they also found no differences in sleep or cardiometabolic health. But what they did find is that the people who skipped breakfast had greater variability in their blood sugar in the afternoon, which is not a good thing. That is one of the things that will over time tend to predispose people to things like diabetes. And then a few years later, the same group of researchers used the same design, but this time looked at obese people. And they found that people who skip breakfast burn few calories in the morning, but they didn't burn fewer calories over the course of the whole day. And the only difference was that insulin sensitivity was worse in those who skip breakfast. So both of these studies really show that, if anything, skipping breakfast tends to lead people to consume slightly fewer calories, but it may have negative consequences on blood sugar regulation. And when you compare that with the previous work that I mentioned by Courtney Peterson and her colleagues, what it starts to suggest is that time-restricted eating is neither good nor bad. It's how you apply it and when you apply it specifically that determines whether it's likely to be good or bad. And just to circle back to something I mentioned earlier, which is the practicality of time-restricted eating. If you're somebody who thinks that it's not feasible to finish consuming all calories by 2 or 3 p.m. each day, then what you can do is you can just shift the majority of your calorie intake earlier in the day and there have been some really nice studies that have shown that this is beneficial. So one of these was done about six years ago, and it was looking at weight loss in overweight and obese women. And they were split into two groups. In one group, half of them consumed half of their calories at breakfast. So that's the early group. And half of them consumed half their calories at dinner. So that's the late group. But otherwise, the diets were exactly the same. And they found that late eaters lost less than half of their body weight less than half of the inches off their waists. And they also had smaller improvements in blood sugar and blood lipid regulation. So what all of this evidence seems to be converging on is that if you're going to use time-restricted eating, or if you're just going to make changes to how you distribute your calories each day, then you want to generally shift them earlier in your day if that's possible for you. And I think that is something that most people can accomplish. Wow. Uh, that's just, uh, the nuances there are so interesting and it's just, what an exciting time where, 
you know, 10 years ago, we wouldn't have had the information, scientific information, the research, in other words, to make these decisions. It just blows me away because people would be arguing about this stuff and uh, nobody, nobody knows who is right or not because it's all based on just someone's experience, which, you know, there's a lot of drawbacks to basing your, your strategies on that. But I will say this, from my own personal experience, I feel terrible when I skip breakfast, but it's easier to do socially. So it's easier to do, but mm. I just don't feel good doing it. And then I feel that it's harder to skip dinner socially, but I feel fine if I do it, right? Like if I have my calories earlier in the day and I just coast for for the rest of the night and not eat, I feel mm-hmm. better. I sleep better, but it's mm-hmm. just, uh, that's the the social time. And then now we're, we know that spending time with people and, um, you know, the social connections that we have help mm-hmm. in lowering inflammation too. And it's no wonder that so many people who are trying to stay on top of this stuff get confused about like, oh, but am I raising my inflammation through mm-hmm. lack of social contact versus, <laughs> you know what I mean? It just can get uh, kind of confusing. Do you have any practical advice on on doing this, on fitting it into someone's life who isn't a biohacker who yeah. you know, shines infrared light on their genitals to boost <laughs> testosterone levels and, and someone who is a mom or a dad and works a nine to five job or runs a business and um, you know has kids. What's the practical information there uh, that you can share? Yeah, of course. So I think there are a couple of things that are very important for these people. So one is to recognize that you don't have to do this every day. And there haven't really been many human studies that have looked at the effects of using this intermittently. And being regular in the times at which you consume your meals each day is optimal, but also it's not feasible for most people most of the time. So with that said, there is some preclinical research or research using other animals, my specifically, that has looked at what happens when you use time-restricted feeding, but only do so on five days each week. So this is akin to using time-restricted eating for a human from Monday to Friday, and then loosening up on the weekends, going out, seeing some friends in the evening, having a couple of beers, whatever it might be. And what that research suggests is that, if anything, you can still experience the vast majority of the benefits from doing early time-restricted eating if you use it five days each week. So that's one point. Next point would be that if you do consume calories in the evening and you feel like you need to be that way for social reasons and you need to be that way all the time, then that's fine. But I would just consider trying to reapportion your calories such that more of them come earlier in the day. And that's contrary to how most people eat in the West. So if you look at Americans, for example, then they typically consume perhaps more than 30% of their calories after 6 p.m. each day. But if if you can exercise some self-restraint, and start to reduce your intake of those later meals, then you can still spend time with your loved ones, but you'll probably be doing yourself some metabolic favors by reducing the size of your late meals or late drinks or whatever it might be. So I'd say that's a consideration too. The next would be getting other people on board. 
So if, for example, you're a mother and you have a couple of kids and you have a husband and everyone's used to having dinner, then you can think about whether it's possible for you to try and influence the others to try this earlier pattern and think about the barriers that might currently be stopping you from doing so. And there's been some nice research by a lady named Gabriel Ertingen looking at what happens when people go through this active mental process of trying to identify barriers that stand in the way of them enacting the behaviors that they want to act. And when people go through that process, they tend to be about 30% better at actually sticking to those behaviors. So thinking about everything that stands in the way of you putting this to practice and then considering ways around that. So this really comes down to behavior change. And that's not a subject that I'm an expert in, of course, but I think that it's definitely worth people going out and finding out more about that subject. And I really think that's very productive because they can then take some of those concepts and apply it to any aspect of their life and any aspects of their health. So I'll just mention a couple of resources on the subject. One is a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is a very practical resource on developing healthier habits, if that's what you would like. Another is Gabriel Ertingen's work. And there are some other researchers such as Nir Ayal and BJ Fogg, whose work I would also look at. So I haven't really given you a very direct answer there, but I think those resources will be helpful. But it comes down to first being practical, trying to make the later meal smaller. Second, getting other people on board if possible. Third, this doesn't have to be something that you do every day. And if periodically you can start to shift things earlier, then all of those small improvements that you're likely to make from those days when you do engage in that behavior are likely to accumulate into something substantial over time. Yeah, solid points. And I love that you brought up getting people on board with this because so often we'll have big goals for our health. We'll listen to a podcast like this and we'll want to implement it. We'll get excited about it. Like, oh, I could do that. I could push my meals earlier. And then once we get into the chaos that is, you know, our home with the kids or the the wife or the husband, and then having some friends over or some family over, and then all of a sudden you're not able to do it. But if you step up and communicate and have those conversations and getting people involved or and perhaps even sending this podcast or or sending some of those resources that you mentioned, Greg, and getting people on board with this w- without being overly pushy, that can really, that's something that I work with on my coaching clients because um, if their partner isn't on board and maybe even actively sabotages them, there's, there's yeah. just the best program in the world can't overcome that. Yeah, those, those, uh, those are great experience. points. And, and I, I think something that I should mention now is that there are some small strategies that people can use that are likely to reduce their energy intake at subsequent dietary events. These have been shown to do this routinely in the literature. So, for example, if you want to consume a smaller dinner, but you're still going to have dinner, then consuming a bolus of whey protein shortly before that dinner typically reduces people's subsequent energy intake at that meal, but also it's likely to improve their blood sugar responses to that meal. Simple things such as chewing gum before meals, that sounds strange, tend to 
improve appetite regulation too. So that's another one. Another could be consuming a high fiber item. So people sometimes use this before going to buffets, for instance, if you have an apple and you consume that slowly, or if you have a significant volume of a fluid before a buffet, then that will tend to reduce your intake at that buffet. But in this instance, you wouldn't want to consume a large amount of water or sparkling water before dinner because that's likely to lead to nocturia or an increased likelihood of you going to the loo at, at night in the middle of the sleep period. So you don't want that. But simple strategy like that, trying a bolus of whey protein, that might be something like 30 to 40 grams of whey protein and a piece of fruit before an occasion when you're likely to overeat late in the evening is probably a useful strategy for many people. Awesome. I did not know there was research on the whey protein before eating a meal, but that's one of my my secret strategies that I use personally and, and for clients. It just makes you less hungry. <laughs> but that, that's so cool. And thank you for sharing the other ones. I didn't realize the gum was effective. Uh, so if you're listening right now, Greg just gave you some great pointers on how you can take control of your appetite, which is the biggest issue that you're facing if you're trying to reduce your body fat, reduce your weight. It has to do with uh, managing your energy balance, how, how much you eat, uh, specifically the, the amount of calories you eat. And by having, you know, following what Greg just shared, that's just pure gold right there. I can't wait to share that with some of my coaching clients. Greg, let's change gears a little bit. I'm very curious. Actually, I, I want to ask you this. Uh, you have an aura ring, I take it. I don't. <laughs> you don't? Oh, wow. Okay, no, no, interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the three people that, that does not. Okay, interesting. Yeah, have, has a PhD in sleep and circadian rhythms, doesn't own an aura ring. Very interesting. <laughs> well, I just wanted to bring this up to you. It's so interesting that... Um, uh, I've done, now we can do experiments on ourselves and, you know, the N equals one. There's probably, you know, in my humble opinion, there's no more important research that you can do than paying attention to the data that you get from how you're reacting to your lifestyle, to your choices. And, you know, of course, assuming that the aura ring is as accurate as it claims to be, but I've noticed when I eat late, not only do I don't feel so great, but it shows up in the aura ring readings. And um, we don't need to go into what they are, but but my heart rate is elevated. Uh, you know, my temperature has been elevated, and definitely the rest. I've been more restless, so waking up more, um, even if I didn't wake up a hundred percent. Is that been shown in the literature to happen with late meals? Yeah. And I actually want to also pick up on something that you mentioned earlier. So first, I think you're probably referring to your recovery score and you might also be referring to your pulse rate variability. People speak about heart rate variability, but Bura measures the volume at the finger. So it's looking at pulse rate variability. But with that said, there's some work that's come out last year, which shows that if people consume more of their calories at dinner relative to earlier in the day, then their overnight heart rate variability tends to be lower. And that would also tend to associate with more disrupted sleep. So that makes perfect sense to me. 
And the thing that I wanted to pick up on that you mentioned earlier was how people respond to the data that these devices are giving. And this is really, really important because what's happened in the last couple of years is that people have started to refer to sleep specialists based on the device's data. So maybe they have a Fitbit or an Aura Ring and the Aura Ring says that they're getting 5% REM sleep which is the stage of sleep in which people dream each evening. And if they were getting 5% REM sleep, then, then that would potentially be a problem. But none of these devices as yet is very good at staging sleep or identifying when somebody is in deep sleep or REM sleep or the lighter stage of sleep. And so how we respond to these data is very important. At the moment, the devices are all quite good at estimating sleep duration and sleep efficiency, which is the proportion of time that somebody is trying to be asleep that they actually spend sleeping, but then not very good at sleep staging. So with that said, I think that when people look at these devices and maybe the score indicates that they are a little bit overstressed or not so ready as they would be if they were better rested, then they need to realize that those data aren't perfect. And I think that delivering knowledge or delivering information about how well-rested somebody is needs to be done very carefully because actually there is some evidence that's come out recently that if you tell people that they've had a bad night's sleep, even if objectively they've had a good night's sleep, then that will impair their subsequent cognitive performance. And this is relevant to all different types of tests too and i actually wrote a blog about this not too long ago but there's been some very cool work by research at stanford university published just recently which shows that in some instances what people think about their genes has a stronger effect on their biology than the actual genetic variants that they have so if somebody has a so-called good variant of a particular gene but they're told that they have the so-called bad variant, then the knowledge that or the thought that they have the bad variant is actually more detrimental than the beneficial effect of the good variant, if that makes sense. So, oh, Greg, that's not the fun stuff, man. Are you <laughs> telling me that the mindset that we have is more important than, uh, than anything else? Oh, that's, that's hard to sell. I'm totally kidding. I, I, I am so with you on that. And it's, and it's very important. Um, yeah, that we not, uh, buy into any of this information too much. I will say this though. I had a client who had a very high resting heart rate at night. And, um, no matter what strategies, I, I have a lot of very effective strategies for lowering resting heart rate. These you know, cardiovascular uh, progressions, these cardiorespiratory training progressions that I use, and it just wasn't coming down. And um, she ended up going to her primary care doctor in the US, and she was ended up, uh, she ended up diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. Uh, and, and the aura ring was the thing that kind of caught it. So I wanted to share that because the sleep stages, like you meant, the aura ring's not measuring your your brain waves, and that's what a polysomnograph does. Uh, you know, correct me if I'm off on any of this, of course, Greg. But but there's some other things that it can 
handle, but you're probably, the truth is without someone, without consulting someone who's, um, you know, I told her to go to the doctor. We, you know, it's like, you, you should get this checked out. It's, it's weird that your, you know, heart rate is a hundred. And that was the, the lowest resting heart rate of the night. It was a hundred, you know, that's very high or in the nineties, it's very high. And it helped her get a hold of something that she was dealing with that wasn't being that, that need medical attention um, yeah. and not, you know, like just some fooling around um, coaching in other words, which I, I have a lot of respect for what I do, but just saying there's times when you need a doctor, but you're yeah. probably, if you're just a lay person just listening to podcasts and everything, you're probably going to want someone to help you with interpreting that data so you don't read into it like you said, Greg, or so that you catch these potential issues. Yeah, and as you say, the O-rings and the Fitbits of the world are quite good at measuring pulse rate. And there aren't so many data about how good they are at measuring pulse rate variability, but if they're good at measuring pulse rate, then you can probably infer that they're okay at measuring that too. So when I was saying that, I was referring more to sleep staging specifically, but certainly more and more people are interested in using these data also to identify problems on the fly. So I know that Apple, for example, now have the ability to have users opt in to being notified of potential cardiovascular issues based on the measures that the watch is collecting at the wrist. And that's definitely a positive thing if people are willing to share those data and, and they can start to forecast when somebody's at risk of a cardiovascular event. So it's definitely an exciting time. And I for sure foresee a time at which these devices can, can be really, really important at helping people avoid transitions into negative health consequences. Just read those terms and conditions, right? <laughs> the data one, yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I just watched uh, The Great Hack on Netflix recently, which was all about data and everything. Um, so so I had to make that joke but because um, nobody reads the terms and conditions. Greg, I'd love to, we're kind of pushing uh, uh, 40 minutes here and I know you're a very busy guy, but I'd love to just touch on some sleep if you if you have the time for it. Yeah, of course. So we've covered sleep extensively on this show. And um, I, I'd love for you, however, if you could, what can a person do who is doing everything right? Let's say they're going to bed at more or less the same time. Let's say, you know, they're doing their best to black out their bedroom. They're wearing their blue blocking glasses a couple hours before bed. Uh, let's say they're cooling their bedroom. Let's say their mattress is comfortable. You know, let's say they're even eating earlier in the day, mm -hmm. but let's say they still have some issues. Maybe they're wearing an aura ring or a Fitbit, or maybe they just wake up feeling like crap yeah. and they have a hard time getting good sleep, even though they're following so many of these basic hygiene points that, you know, just kind of everyone knows now. Um, yeah. Obviously, this is a hard question to ask you because it's very general, but mm. could you help unpack that a little bit and maybe direct, um, you know, give someone some advice on maybe something that they're missing, something that could help? Yeah. So 
for those people who seem to be doing everything right, but they're still having difficulty sleeping, that's really raising a red flag that they might have a sleep disorder. And sometimes it is those very people who are actively trying hard to do everything right that have the most difficulty sleeping. And a lot of that relates to their cognitions about sleep. So the first port of call for these people really is going to see a sleep medicine specialist and trying to identify what the source of their sleep issues might be. So the description that you gave there, the most likely issue would be insomnia. But it could be a variety of different things too. And we now know that there are more than 100 different sleep-wake rhythm disorders, of which insomnia is just one. There are also things like obstructive sleep apnea, which is quite common. And I'll just I'll speak about insomnia because it is, it is relatively widespread. Perhaps 7% of Europeans or something like that have insomnia. And it's quite common for everybody to experience it at some point in their life. And maybe that's just work-related stress or whatever it might be. And it will probably be transient in that case. But if you do have insomnia, then first, of course, you need to be diagnosed with it. So that would be going to your sleep medicine specialist. There are questionnaires that you can answer online to that will help you identify whether you might have that. But the common symptoms of it are things like difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, waking up too early, just not feeling refreshed after sleeping, generally feeling fatigued having difficulty concentrating, so maybe you're rereading the same line of text again and again, having mood and behavioral problems, all these different things. And it would typically be diagnosed by some sort of clinical interview and people would answer certain questionnaires and fill in some sleep diaries about how they've been sleeping recently and so on. But it is crippling and it is also very treatable. And interestingly, the most common form of treatment, which is always the first line treatment for insomnia, is called cognitive behavioral therapy. And it seems to be that CBT is as effective when delivered online as it is in person. And there's an online program called Sleepio, S-L-E-E-P-I-O, which is available to anybody that offers a six-week or six-week-plus course for people who have insomnia which takes people through treatment for insomnia in a systematic way. And I've actually used it myself relatively recently because I've not been sleeping that well of late. <laughs> it's funny because the last two nights I've had terrible nights of sleep. So if I'm making no sense today whatsoever, then that probably helps explain why that's the case. But Sleepio will take you through a program in which, yes, you learn about these basics of sleep hygiene, but also you'll start to address your sleep-related cognitions. And there are common themes that underlie people who have difficulty sleeping or have insomnia. And they have all these negative sleep-related thoughts. And they also tend to associate their beds with the bed being a place of wakefulness. So what they need to do is they need to condition themselves to relearn that the bed is the, the place of sleep. And also to learn how to reframe their thoughts such that they're thinking more positively about sleep. So on the first point, and that is associating the bed with sleep, it's really important people save the bed for sleep and sex only. But what that means is that if somebody's having difficulty sleeping during the night, then they should leave the bedroom, go elsewhere, do something relaxing and dim lighting, and only return to the bedroom 
when they're sleepy again. Same thing at night time before going to bed. Maybe you plan to go to bed at 10 p.m., but you're just not tired at 10 p.m. Don't go to bed then at 10 p.m. So the analogy that sleep researchers often use is that you wouldn't sit down at the dinner table and wait to get hungry. Well, sleep is much the same. So you need to retrain your brain to associate your bed with sleep, apply that 15-minute rule, and then start to address these cognitions. So that will help you overcome these sleep-related threat cues. And sometimes people become very attuned to their internal bodily sensations, their heartbeat, their breathing. Sometimes they're very attuned to external ones, such as noises that come from outside the bedroom. And there are different strategies that people can use to overcome these. But one is just making sure that their thoughts are all offloaded at the end of the day. So they don't have things racing through their minds about what they need to get done in the days to come. And simply making a to-do list shortly before bedtime can be useful for that. And if you do that, then keep the list by your bedside such that if you wake up during the night and you need to get that idea out of your head so you're not actively trying to hold on to it so you don't forget it in the morning, then the person can just jot down that on the notepad again. But then also... If somebody's very attuned to their internal sensations, then visualization exercises can be very useful. And if people practice these during the daytime, so just going somewhere in their head where they feel relaxed and they try and tune in as much as possible to all the different senses. So how does it sound in this place? How does it feel? What can they smell? What can they see? Who are they with? What's the temperature like? Then over time they can go back to that happy relaxed place more quickly and then if they're lying in bed at night and they can feel their heart pounding they can draw on that visualization which will help them detach themselves from those internal sensations so that's a useful strategy and then one more that i'll mention is that if somebody has a very busy mind then they can actually just try and block thoughts and sometimes that can just be repeating one word over and over again which sounds really boring and it is but one that's commonly used is just the word the so somebody would lie in bed and if they keep getting these thoughts they would just repeat the 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 and it's so boring that people do tend to fall asleep actually i'm going to i'm going to mention one more too which is an idea that was actually popularized by the guy who wrote man's search for meaning victor frankl and that's the idea of paradoxical intent and If people who are struggling to sleep tell themselves in their mind, stay awake, and they actively try and stay awake, not by getting up and switching the lights on and doing jumping jacks or anything like that, but if they're in bed and it's dark and they open their eyes and they look at the ceiling and they say, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake, they actually tend to fall asleep faster, which is completely counterintuitive, but that's a very useful strategy for some people too. So broadly speaking, go and see a sleep medicine specialist there's a chance that it might be something that's not sleep related. So in the case of your client, for example, she had hypothyroidism. Sometimes with sleep issues, somebody might have something like PTSD, which hasn't been addressed. And that might might be the source of their sleep problems. But if those are ruled out and the person is identified with something like insomnia, they can then go to one of these online programs, which are very effective. And hopefully they find that advice helpful. Greg, that was just brilliant, man. Thank you so much for sharing all those resources. And uh, I love I love uh, what you mentioned about paradoxical intent. There's nothing 
worse than telling yourself, oh, uh, yeah, I've got to go to sleep. Come on, let's try to go to sleep. Trying to do something like that just, yeah. So when you reverse it and say, okay, try to stay up, try to stay up. Yeah, that that works. Um, So, and Viktor Frankl came up with that. I love that. Um, Mm. Greg, just a brilliant interview. Thank you so much for coming on today and and sharing your time, your information, and all this uh, wisdom about sleep and all, you know, interpreting these studies and and just being able to make practical recommendations based on them. Just great talking to you. I could easily speak with you for another couple hours. Unfortunately, (laughs) we we both have things to do here. But uh, as far as you know, where people can go to connect with you. You have an Instagram at G-D-M-P-O-T-T-E-R, so G-D-M Potter, and a Twitter with this same handle, G-D-M Potter, P-O-T-T-E-R. Is there any other place where you'd like someone to connect with you? Yeah, so so they can they can find me there. I'm actually going through a phase at the moment a so-called digital declutter based on Cal Newport's work. So I'm not using any social media right now, but by the time this is out, I might be back on there. I'm not a massive user of it though, as it is, but if people do reach out to me via those channels, then I, I will eventually get back to them for sure. But otherwise I'm on LinkedIn. You can find my academic research on ResearchGate, but actually more practically, if people have found this useful, then I would direct them to humanos.me. And I've contributed many blogs to that site and I've hosted their podcast a few times. And there's just lots and lots of useful content on sleep and other lifestyle behaviors too, which hopefully people will benefit from. So I would always say go and check out humanos.me as well. And Ted, I know that you've spoken with Dan Party, who's the CEO there before. And Dan's a great guy. So definitely go ahead and look more into that too. Yeah. And uh, we've even put together a a code for people to get access to all the information. Uh, uh, There's tons of free information on there, but the information, the courses and everything. So if they use the code legendary life, all lowercase, they can get access to everything for just $1 for the first month. Is that correct? I think that's correct. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, so go to humanos.me and give that code a try. And if it doesn't work, you just email me. I'll I'll handle everything. Um, Greg, I know that you've uh, had some, you've done some work for them, but you've uh, got a a cool new startup that you're a part of. Um, So not to go too deep into that, but hey man, just really enjoyed our conversation today. It was just fascinating. I really appreciate your perspective and hopefully we can do this again. You Hopefully you won't be too busy with the startup and you'll be able to hop back on and, and share some circadian rhythm wisdom with us once more. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Ted. That wraps up another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. And I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. It was 
One of the best interviews I've ever done personally on sleep circadian rhythms and some of the resources like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I've never heard mentioned anywhere else. And I hope you appreciate that because what we do here at Legendary Life is get the people like Greg on to share with you the things that actually work instead of the people who are promoting, who are, you know, talk a good game, promote their market, they've got their marketing and hey, there's nothing wrong with trying to sell yourself or anything, but we're trying to get the best people here. We're not trying, we actively seek that out. And Craig is one of those people. So really excited to have him on and can't wait to have him back on again. And uh, again, if you are uh, just tuning in and you want to make sure that every time one of my episodes goes live, go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash review. And at that link, I'll show you how to subscribe to the podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And I'll show you how to give us a review. And if you haven't given us a review yet and you're uh, a listener of the show now, really appreciate it. It helps other people find the podcast. If you never do anything else for us, that is completely cool. We're happy to have you here, but we would love for you to take two minutes out of your busy schedule to go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash review so that more people can find this show. And the last thing I'll say before I sign off here is I just want to remind you, we're going to be launching a supplement series. We're going to be talking about what supplements are worth your time and money, which ones aren't. And we put a lot of work into this and there's going to be downloadable guides if you're interested in that and more. So really excited uh, to share this with you. And that's going to be kicking off next Monday. So hope you're looking forward to it as much as I am sharing that information with you. Supplements can help, but far too often people spend or waste their money rather on supplements that just don't work. And I don't want you to be in that situation. So that's all I've got. Hope you're having an amazing week and I'll speak to you soon.